Oh, I love that story. And I just want to say good morning to our 11 o'clock crowd. This, this is the service to be at. It always is. Thank you for bringing the church into this room and into all the spaces that were connected online. I'm so thankful for John and Megan for sharing their story. You heard John mentioned uh, this, this phrase, guardian redeemer. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's in the text and the scripture that we're looking at, and we'll loop back around to their story in just a few minutes. But as some of you know, we're going through a series right now called uh, Against All Odds. We know that many of us right now are facing challenges where it seems like the things that we are up against, uh, they appear insurmountable. How are we going to get through them? We talked last week about uh, the first chapter in the book of Ruth and Naomi's story, the very difficult start uh, to this four-chapter story uh, that takes place in the Old Testament. And the reason we're going back into the Old Testament is we see these stories over and over and over again, the way God shows up is faithful. There is nothing that can stand against God's sovereignty and his will. That was true uh, in 1050 BC when this story takes place. It's true right here in the 21st century. So you're in the right place. We're so glad that you'd be connected with us. Let me take us back last week. If you uh, were here and just to refresh your memory or if you missed it, hopefully I can give you a little bit of of a recap that will get us right into the second half of this story. Basically, what happens in the book of Ruth is we have the story of Naomi and her family, uh, her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Kilian and Milan. They are from Bethlehem, and they are leaving to go to Moab. Now, I do have to say this, that if you happen to catch this online, maybe you, uh, you listened to the service at a different time last week, I totally made a geographical blunder last week. A few of you let me know, actually. Thank you. Um, From Bethlehem to Moab, it's not 1,800 miles, unless it's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Then it's 1,800 miles. So somehow in my research and reading in the scriptures, and you, you know, there's commentaries, and I'm copying and pasting. I'm reading, and I grabbed this 1,800 number put it out there, a couple people are like, I don't think you can go 1,800 miles in 10 days by foot. I actually did some math. You can. If you are a world-class marathon runner and you are able to run 14 hours a day at the record of two hours and about a minute, you know, at that type of marathon speed. You can do it in 10 days, um, but that's not the point. Imagine the luggage that they were carrying. It wasn't Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is the point. If you happen to share, or it was Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it wasn't Bethlehem, Middle East. If you happen to share that detail with somebody this week, I'm sorry, I owe you a coffee. Uh, But hopefully that wasn't your biggest takeaway. But anyways, they were going from Bethlehem to Moab, Moab was a controversial destination because of the tension that the Israelites had with the Moabites. And we talked about uh, as, the, as God's people were leaving uh, the tyranny of Pharaoh and the, the oppression in Egypt, when they left, uh, it was the Moabites who wouldn't give them food, wouldn't give them water, uh, and in fact told them, you know, we're going to send Balaam to curse you. So there's a lot of tension between them, but there's a famine. The, the family is desperate. They go, they leave Bethlehem. Bethlehem, they, they head to Moab, and while they're there, the two sons meet Moabite w- women, Orpah and Ruth. They marry them. 
But not long after, all three of the men die. Elimelech, Kilion, and Milan all pass away. The three women are left widowed in this land. And Naomi decides, I've got to go back. And she begins to try and convince uh, uh, Ruth and Orpah to stay. Orpah ends up staying uh, behind. Uh, Naomi and Ruth return back to Bethlehem, not Pennsylvania. And as they come into the city there, uh, you might remember that the friends and, and people that knew Naomi literally said to her, can this be Naomi? Her name in Hebrew meaning beautiful, meaning pleasant. Here she comes empty-handed devastated, having lost everything. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me beautiful. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. And that tension, that struggle that she modeled in this story of believing but struggle, struggling also with belief and that wrestling that she had with God. And so they come back and the end of chapter one ends with the barley harvest beginning. It's a grim start to this story. And my goal here this morning is in three chapters, we're going to cover four scenes. We're going to move quickly through this story. Um, and, and the goal here is to get to the end of chapter one and tell you how the story ends. So I hope you have your scriptures or you can follow along. You can turn to Ruth chapter two, and we're going to break down a scene by scene. I encourage you. Go back and read this book yourself. If this is a story that has gripped you the way it's gripped me, and I have been thinking about it every day, uh, go back and read. There are a lot of details that we can't cover uh, just for the sake of time. Go back and read. You'll find a lot more. So let's go to Ruth uh, chapter 2, scene 1. They are back in Bethlehem. We're not even sure. The scriptures don't say where they're staying. Um, and, and they are in a desperate situation. And so scene one starts with, uh, with Ruth saying, we've got to find some food. And so Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Okay, so we've got a connection here. I want you to pay attention to a couple quick things that you'll see repeated in the story that, that continue to uh, show the, the heaviness of what they were facing. Last week, we were focusing on Naomi. Now you're going to see the switch more so to Ruth. Ruth is now a foreigner. She's back in Bethlehem. She's not an Israelite. And she's an immigrant, and you can imagine some of the struggle that she must have been facing. Uh, And you're going to see this come up in the scriptures in just a minute. She is out of her element, but she is venturing out courageously to try to help uh, fix the situation that they're in. And they go, uh, she goes out to glean. What does that mean in the Old Testament? What is gleaning? Basically, in the book of Leviticus, uh, there are a number of commands that God literally gives to Moses to tell the people. These commands are referred to as Levitical laws or uh, the holiness code. You can look at them later. And this is one of them. It's meant to make sure that God's people are protected during different situations that they might face in life. And here's one of them. The instruction is this. For those who uh, agriculturally were harvesters, they owned fields, this was what God said to them. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time 
or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In fact, the very beginning of Leviticus 19, God says, I am holy, therefore be holy. And at the end of many of these commands, these Levitical laws, God continues to remind them that I am the Lord your God. The reason is he wants us to know these are not charitable acts. These are acts of love. This is paying attention to who God is and his character, seeing who our creator is, and doing what God did for us, stepping into situations and doing that for others. That's what these Levitical laws, this holiness code was all about. It was actually acts of worship to step into. So the story continues. Uh, the gleaners are out there. The harvesters are, are, are collecting the food. Uh, there's, there's the poor, the foreigners. They're gleaning behind them. Boaz arrives back from Bethlehem. He was in town. He greets the harvesters. He says, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who's that girl? He pauses. He recognizes somebody different in the field. And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Isn't it interesting, even today, there's always somebody that's a go-between, right? Like when I think back to the early days of dating, often did I go directly to the person that I like? No, I found a friend. They were my go-between. Hey, who's that girl? What do you know about her? And that's what's happening here. Boaz is checking out Ruth. He's already interested. The overseer comes, and I'm sure you caught the words right there. The overseer, the foreman, is, is quick to point out, hey, she's a Moabite. Did I, did I tell you she's from Moab? He wants Boaz to know exactly who this is. And Boaz picks up on that because he recognizes that in that culture, in that situation, in that field of work, often there were abuses against foreigners, against the poor who would come and glean behind the harvesters. Often uh, physical abuse, um, verbal abuse, or worse. And so Boaz steps into the situation. He's heard enough from the foreman. All right, thank you, and he goes right to Ruth. And he is now like full on letting her know how interested he is in her. He says to her, hey, don't go to another field. When you come back tomorrow, you only come back to these fields. I'll make sure that uh, you follow behind the other women. Nobody's going to harass you. No one will embarrass you. I'm going to make sure of it. He even says to her, there's some special water in these jars. It's full of Fiji water. It's the expensive stuff. Make sure you go over there. That's the water that you get. I mean, he is pouring it on here, and it's cool. You should read it later. It made me think about when I was in middle school in the seventh grade, um, I had my first dance. I had no idea what I was doing. My mom stepped in to help me. She said, you're going to need to get your date a corsage. I was like, okay, I have never heard that word before. And she explained it to me, uh, took me to the florist and uh, dropped me off. She let me go in with a credit card. And I walked up to the counter and I said, hey, I, I need a, a, a corsage. Um, and the lady began to ask me questions that I didn't know how to answer, like, how many roses do you want on the corsage? Well, I didn't know that, you know, what's normal would be two, maybe three, four would be a lot. I said a dozen. I'm like, you know, a dozen roses, it sounds romantic. So my poor date, you know, at the whole dance, walking around with an arm like covered in this, 
you know, garden of, of, of a rose bush just all evening. Listen, that's what Boaz is doing here. He is making his impression known that he is all about Ruth. In fact, it continues throughout the day in that, in that chapter, if you want to read later, he begins to then talk real sweetly to her. Hey, I've heard about you. I know about your character. In fact, I know about what happened to your mother-in-law and that she's a widow and I know that you're a widow. And he begins to really point out some of the great qualities that he notices in Ruth. He invites her that day to come back and dine with him uh, during her break. And he even says to the foreman, hey, make sure that as she gleans, leave some of the extra sheaves. Take some of, take some of it out and leave it back behind for her. And, and the scriptures talk about the amount that she had when she went home. It was so much. In fact, we know that because uh, when she go, gets home, Naomi's like, where have you been today? Because all of a sudden, Ruth is kind of stumbling into the house. She's got the balloons and the chocolate candy, and she's got the flowers, you know, and the corsage going up her arm. And she's like, who are you with today? And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. And Naomi replied, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Again, depending on the translation that you use, either kinsman or guardian redeemer. Let's talk about that. What does that mean in the Old Testament? Again, it's, it's one of these uh, Levitical laws. It was part of the holiness code. This is basically what it means uh, as, a, as a nearest of kin, as a brother, a relative. This was the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. It's a relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of disadvantaged family members. All right, so let's fill in the blanks here. In the case of an Israelite man's death, Elimelech passed away, in which he fails to leave behind a son, both of his sons passed away. The brother of the deceased man is commanded to take his widow as wife and both redeem the land and provide a son to carry on the deceased father's name. There's a lot at stake here. It's a big responsibility that's, that's taking place for this kinsman. In fact, it breaks down this way. There's three major things that the scripture highlights. That kinsman redeemer is to make sure that the widow is cared for, protected, put her at the center, make sure she has everything she needs, care for her well. Secondly, there's uh, legal issues here with the property rights and land ownership. You can imagine when she loses a husband, she's in a vulnerable state, others might come and abuse that. That kinsman redeemer is supposed to step in and make sure that her legal rights are cared for and that her property is cared for. And then thirdly, there is an essential piece of carrying on the family name, the, the lineage. And so an heir uh, is critical to this. And that's all part of what the kinsman redeemer is supposed to do. But what is a redeemer? The scriptures really kind of define it pretty basically into several phrases that match what we just read. It's, it's literally just to rescue, to deliver to buy back. You can see all those things apply to what we just read. And that's why I love that story of John and Megan uh, fostering. I know others of us who do that or adopting. 
Some of us are involved in in jail and prison ministry or anti-human trafficking ministry or uh, even mentoring, tutoring. How many of us have had a coach who went way beyond just helping us learn the skills of that sport and really invested in us because they wanted to step in and help in a situation. Maybe they took notice of somebody who was really struggling at home and they knew that that that, that kid needed something extra in their life. That's all part of putting into uh, today real-time modern examples of redemption. So I wanna encourage you, if you are doing that, keep at it. That's one of the ways that God's church continues to shine as light in our community and in our world. And if you're looking for something in 2021, go to our website, find one of those awesome ways to get involved and get engaged in how to practically live out these acts of redemption. So that kind of wraps up scene one. All right, scene two, chapter three, matchmaker. If Naomi had lived today, I think she would have been an entrepreneur, probably would have launched matchmaker.com because immediately, this is what happens. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. So here's the deal. I'm gonna kind of summarize the blueprint. Um, You know, Naomi she sees the writing on the wall. She knows that Boaz is interested in Ruth, and now it's time to coach up Ruth on how to show interest to Boaz. So this is what she says. Here's what you're gonna do. First of all, you're gonna meet him secretly at night. You're gonna go uh, where his office is, where the barley is being cared for and and stored. It's harvest season. He's going to be working late nights, probably sleeping at the office. You're going to go to where he is secretly at night. After he eats, he'll fall asleep. He's going to be exhausted. And what you're going to do is go quietly, lie down next to him, and uncover his feet. Now, you go and read this later, okay? And you can kind of read between the lines. Nothing illicit, immoral, nothing wrong happening here. But Ruth is definitely making some serious passes uh, at Boaz in this chapter. It's pretty amazing. And the gist of it is she's going to sit there while he's sleeping. How many of you have ever woken up in the middle of the night because your feet's sticking out of the covers catch a draft, you wake up, you know, get recovered. He does the same thing. He wakes up, it's dark, he can't see her. He asks, who are you? And Ruth tells him that it's her, it's me, it's Ruth. And she asks to share the edge of his garment. So this is one of those dots that I want you to connect that we're gonna, we're gonna kind of do here at the very end of this story. Basically, in in that time period, you've probably seen some of these uh, traditional shawls that the Israelites, that Israelite men would have worn. It's called a talit. It would have different number of tassels depending on the shawl, uh, called tzitzits. But the real piece that I want you to focus on is the edges. The edges of uh, the shawl was basically, in Hebrew, referred to a kanif. And, And the word basically is the same word for the wing of a bird. So if you were to read in Hebrew in the Old Testament and talk about the wings uh, of, a, of a bird flying, it would use the word kenith. Or in this case, when it's talking about the wing of this shaw, it's referencing the same thing. And she's basically saying, would you cover me with the edge of the wing of your garment? And we'll come back to why that's so significant. And so 
After that takes place, she says to Boaz, hey, by the way, you are a kinsman redeemer to my family. Now, guys are typically a little slower, right, than, than girls, and, you know, they're often two steps ahead. But in this case, Boaz also has been calculating, and he's been working a plan because you can see that churning in his mind, he's already got a response back uh, to Ruth. In fact, he says to her, actually, there's a hurdle. I'm not the nearest kinsman. There's somebody else. He'd already been thinking ahead. But he says this, listen, I'm going to figure out a plan. You stay here, loads her up with more barley. Um, She stays and leaves uh, the next morning. He heads back to the town. And then this next scene picks up in chapter four. But basically, chapter three concludes with just this incredibly romantic scene of how both are totally into each other and ready to take whatever next steps are necessary uh, to advance this relationship. And that leads us to the last chapter. So we come into scene three, and there's a deal that has to be negotiated. Chapter four moves quickly. All of a sudden, it's morning, and Boaz is in town. He goes to the town gate. He sits down there just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned uh, came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down, and Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And so they did. He got a council together. What's really cool about this that I have to point out is it's the narrator here, the author of Ruth, is going out of their way to never mention this other dude's name. His name is never mentioned. In fact, the way the Hebrew is written in this story, it's, it kind of often just refers to him as so-and-so. You know, oh, what's his name? It's kind of like when... You know, maybe when you're dating somebody new, you never refer by name to your old girlfriend or boyfriend. It's like a no-no. Like, you just don't do it. You just kind of refer to them as he or she. That's kind of what's happening here. The narrator is putting all the emphasis, all the glory, all of the, of the name uh, on Boaz. Because what Boaz was doing was stepping into kind of a tricky situation, putting his name and reputation on the line because he was ready to step in and do all the work for the kinsman redeemer. And this other guy just kind of gets referred to as so-and-so. And so he gets the council together and Boaz begins to lay it out and he says, you actually have first rights to the property. And the guy's like, sounds like a deal to me, you know, add more property to his portfolio. He says, I'll redeem it. And so at first he accepts. And then Boaz says, but there's, there's more to it. You also will take Naomi, the widow of of Elimelech, and you'll take the daughter-in-law, who's a Moabite, as well. Well, this complicated the deal. And all of a sudden, for reasons that we're not totally sure, so-and-so is kind of doing the math, and he figures that uh, what he's inheriting is going to complicate his estate, and he's not sure how much uh, will go to his biological children. And so he kind of pulls out of the deal and says, I'm out. You can, you can actually redeem this situation. And so what's his name totally declines. What's so cool in this story, and you can read it later in this chapter, it's almost as if trumpets sound, they don't literally, um, but it's almost as if confetti rains down from heaven because as 
soon as this guy mentions, what's his name, says, hey, the deal is off, boom, the deal is done. Boaz is standing, announcing to everybody um, the engagement. In fact, what's amazing in the scripture, there's a part of the text there where uh, what's his name takes off his sandal. Because part of inking the deal, signing the deal, is that the, the person would take off his sandal and hand it to the person to say the deal is done, almost as if to say, it's your property, you can walk on that land, it's yours, the deal's done. I'm imagining Boaz here, like, I would love to have been a fly on the wall, I bet his shawl had like sweat rings underneath it. I bet he was sweating that negotiation deal. I can envision what's his name trying to, you know, hand over this dirty sandal and Boaz is just pushing that thing out of the way. He's, he's you know, got the tux being ordered. He's sending out the cards for save the date. The wedding cake is getting ready. I mean, it's a done deal. And man, he is ready to celebrate. And that's how the story ends, except it doesn't just quite end there. There's an amazing piece of scripture. Again, sometimes in the Old Testament, there's some in the New Testament too. We often skip verses that just get into names. It's, they're hard to pronounce and they're just genealogy and it's hard to connect the why behind it. But what's so cool in, at the end of chapter four in Ruth is there's this little section that ends the story and it actually, it's like the end credits. And what it does is it goes back 10 generations and it connects the dots all the way to Boaz. Now, I want you to pause before I show you these verses. Think about Naomi for a second. Chapter one, coming back empty, not feeling beautiful, not feeling pleasant, feeling uh, ignored, feeling empty, feeling lost, feeling like there's no future. And now she's watching in the providence of God, Ruth marry Boaz, and they end up having a son, and Naomi becomes a grandma. And so the scene ends with these verses. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. That would be King David, and it doesn't end there. What's so unbelievable, church, is fast forward 14 generations later. Go to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, the first chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but it starts with a long list of genealogical names, and guess what you end up seeing, 14 generations past King David, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. God is in the details. This little story that's nestled in the Old Testament, 66 books in the Old Testament, many of them long, in this four-chapter book, the story of two widows that the world would have probably forgotten, and yet they stood in the gap there, trusted that there's a God, that God is almighty, God is El Shaddai, 
And that even if we don't understand all the circumstances, it's okay. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to do battle with God. He's not intimidated by that. He invites us in. And that's the story for us today in the 21st century. It's the story of a redeemer, Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer who came and stepped in and rescued and delivered and came through in every way for us. I heard a story once, maybe, maybe you've heard it as well. There's a, it's the story of a guy who was walking down the road one day and he fell into a ditch. And it was, it was deep and, and he couldn't get out. The sides were too steep. He was stuck. He couldn't get out of there. And he, after trying for a few minutes, he gave up. And finally, he saw somebody walking along and he yelled up to that person, hey, can you help me? And uh, the person looked down and, uh, and the guy in the ditch noticed that it, it was a, a doctor. He was wearing a, a lab coat. And the doctor wrote a prescription, threw, it, threw the prescription down and walked away. The guy's like, great. And so he waits a while longer and he sees another guy come by and he yells, hey, can you help me? And the, and the guy stops and he notices it's a priest. He's got the collar on and the priest writes down a prayer and he throws it in the ditch and he keeps going. And so finally, some more time passes and another guy walks by and he, the guy in the ditch recognizes him. It's his friend, Joe. Joe, can you help me? I'm stuck down here. I fell into this hole and I can't get myself out. And mid-sentence, before he can say anything else, Joe jumps into the ditch with him. And his friend's like, are you crazy? What are you doing? Now we're both stuck down here. We're never gonna get out. And Joe says, it's okay. I've been in this ditch before. I know how to get us out. That's the story of Boaz stepping in to rescue, to deliver, to fill the gap, to stand in the gap. That's the story of what Jesus did for each of us. It's what we're called to do as a church today, to walk in the footsteps of these characters named Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Let's not be the so-and-so, the what's-his-name, we're the ones that walk in the lineage of Christ. We're the ones that step in as the family of God into our community, our neighborhoods, our schools, the situations where others are needing some form of modern-day kinsman redeemer. Let's be that church. Let's do it again and again and again and let the light of shine Christ to the world today. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we worship you as the God who is holy, the one who stepped in, who sent Jesus to fill that gap and to be for us what we could never be for ourselves, our redeemer for eternity, the one who has rescued us not just forever but for today. Father, we confess to you that we so often overlook those opportunities around us to step in and, and be of help, to speak a word of encouragement, to help in a practical need. Would you inspire us, God, to walk in the image of our creator, of Jesus? Holy Spirit, give us that courage where we lack it. Help us 
to uh, remember and worship you as the faithful one who went against all odds to rescue us. Help us to do that again today. We pray in Jesus' name.